If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, today we have an incredible conversation with Jeannie Sager. And we're going to be speaking with Jeannie about the role of gender in philanthropy. This is such an important topic right now, and I am incredibly grateful that Jeannie is going to be coming on to have this conversation with us. Before I introduce Jeannie, let me just say that fall is right around the corner. I know we're in the dog days of summer right now, but fall is right around the corner. And One of the things that often happens in the fall is organizations start to work on their budgeting if they've got a fiscal year that mirrors the calendar year, and boards and chief executives start to scratch their heads and say, maybe we should be thinking about strategic planning. So if you're thinking about strategic planning next year or even this fall, give me a call. I am happy to have that conversation with you. You can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com to reach out to me. And let me also say I'm a pretty easy person to find contact information for me just by Googling it. Now, I'm so excited to be able to introduce Jeannie Sager to you. And let me share with you how I ended up meeting Jeannie. So I finished reading the book Philanthropy Revolution by Lisa Greer. Such a great book. I really recommend if you've not read it that you get a copy and you read it. But so I recently finished reading that book. And after I was done, I was talking to Lexi. And I was like, Lexi, oh my gosh, we've got to find someone who can come on and speak knowledgeably from a data perspective and a human story perspective about women and philanthropy. And so this will probably not surprise you because we turn down the vast majority of publicists that approach us. We scoured the country for an expert. And you know what? That's exactly what we found. So let me share with you just a little bit about Jeannie. 
She has experience in the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, the government sector, and she is currently the director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at Indiana University. And so you probably are familiar with Indiana University because they were on the forefront decades ago of turning fundraising into an academic endeavor as well. They were some of the first ones who said, okay, there's a lot of anecdotes about how to fundraise. Let's get some data. Let's do research on this, and let's teach people how to do it. And so that's what Jeannie is now doing as director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute. And part of what I love, because, again, you know, we research guests pretty, pretty thoroughly before we invite them on. And part of what I love is that she is doing such a tremendous job of translating research to practice. And listeners, I think you know that... I really value when we can take that research and take that data and say, this is how it's going to impact those of us that are doing the work in the sector. So Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dolph. I'm so thrilled to be here with all of, with all of you and your listeners today. Well, thank you. And I'm grateful that you made the time. And I thought I might just start. I know when you and I spoke a bit ago, you had mentioned that part of your institute's mission is to increase giving by all. Tell me about that. Sure. So at the Women's Philanthropy Institute, we conduct, curate, and disseminate rigorous research that we hope grows all philanthropy. We now have over 130 data points that demonstrate that gender matters in philanthropy. But the research has not quite yet uh, changed behaviors. And while people are finally aware that gender matters, there hasn't really been a compelling reason to change behavior in our philanthropic sector, right? I mean, in 2019, we raised close to $450 billion a year, and we're rewarded for it. And But we don't focus on the gap. How much more could we raise if women, in particular, were met as they prefer and gave more? And so it's really exciting to kind of really put this research to practice and get it into practitioners' hands because we can adapt. Other, other sectors have adapted to the reality that, that women um, are making more household decisions, um, that they are generally this chief financial officer of their homes, um, their own wealth is rising. And so it's time um, for adaptations to be made by fundraisers. And here's the great thing. If we adapt for women, we get all donors. But if we maintain these current platforms and approaches, we'll continue to get more men, but often we might not get the women. So this is an opportunity to really look at all the different ways that gender influences how and why and where men and women give and raise giving by all. When we spoke a little bit ago, you would kind of underscore that very point with a story about a fundraiser at an Ivy League institution that you had a conversation with. Yes. So interestingly enough, uh, you know, we can get kind of siloed in this work, right? So I spend my day eating and breathing gender matters and philanthropy. And so it's still shocking to me that some of our evergreen work and findings, right? Women's wealth is rising. Women are more likely to give. Women give differently. Still isn't widely known. And so I met a young fundraiser early in her career, works for an Ivy League school, and she quite frankly and candidly said, I don't know if I can raise money from women. I only have men in my portfolio. 
I have only raised money from men um, in this short time that I've been doing this work. And that to me, I was just floored. And it, it underscored um, what we've been saying, um, that, that, that women aren't being paid attention to. And fundraisers in particular have agency in this. You have control over who you call and what meetings you try to arrange. And um, so if, if as an organization, you're very committed to um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, including who you are engaging um, in supporting your mission, you need to pay attention to who is in your portfolio, just like this, this, this young fundraiser did, where she just finally realized, my goodness, I don't know that I have a woman in my portfolio right now. That continues to be stunning to me. And talk to me about why that is, that we have fundraisers, even women fundraisers, and their portfolio, it's all men. Our industry, our work, um, which you and I have, have been engaged in for decades, you know, was built at a time in the 1960s that really was built around white, wealthy male donors. Even just think about the language we use in fundraising in, in our system, right? So we talk about camp, it's very militarized. We talk about campaigns, right? Uh, fundraisers are called gift officers or worse yet, development officers. What's, you know, what's development, right? We talk about peer-to-peer challenges. And so, and then, and even the metrics, um, the metrics are, are so driven um, by numbers and goals. So just even the language that we use to describe our work, is it female friendly? And so, so it's really a systems issue, right? So if we, don't, if we don't change and if we're not intentional, we really like to talk a lot about being intentional and strategic and making that change in philanthropy. So even our, our own um, beloved field um, that we've devoted um, our careers to hasn't adapted, just hasn't made the, the, the adaptations yet. It's interesting. One of the points that you made is that we need to be pursuing more diversity and more inclusion among our donors if we're truly Jedi organizations, organizations committed to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And one of the things that made me think about, and I'm hoping we can maybe talk about it a little bit, is I'd also be willing to bet that Jediing how you're doing fundraising also probably helps you better meet your values programmatically. Because when all you're talking to are white, wealthy men, you know, chances are some are going to be pretty woke, but some are not going to understand why you want to move programs into a specific direction. Right, right. And as you know, you know, not to to belabor the point, but so many of these platforms uh, created for giving have an unconscious bias. Just like almost well, every system that we live under, an unconscious bias towards men that are that are already built into the algorithms, including the back office in terms of the databases, right? So we have all kinds of horror stories about women not being thanked appropriately. And so really engaging and understanding how women understand their generosity and demonstrate their generosity, but throughout the whole fundraising spectrum, from marketing, seeing themselves in your materials, right? Um, hearing their stories and your story, uh, to all the way through to stewardship, 
making sure the thank you letter goes to the appropriate individual in the household who is responsible for that gift. Um, or even making sure you don't include the individual who was not responsible <laughs> for making that, but having that conversation. And I think if our listeners walk away with anything today, make sure you have the conversation with her. Ask her, engage her, be deliberate and, and, and intentional about how you include more hers um, in your work. I have an interesting story on that. I actually had coffee this week now that I'm fully vaccinated. By the way, listeners, I know this is uh, being released in August, but we're recording this in May. And so now that I'm fully vaccinated, I'm actually able to meet colleagues and friends for coffee again. And so I had I met someone this week for coffee, and she's an environmental lawyer. And she shared with me a story where she made a very significant gift to a large national um, I don't want to say the name of the organization, so a large national environmental nonprofit. And she made the gift. She signed the check. She wrote out the card, um, the you know, the, the giving card, and it was just her name. And when the acknowledgement came back, it it was to her and her husband, and her husband's name was first. And it was Mr. and Mrs. Husband's name, last name. And she called them up and, and she's like, you know, I'm an environmental attorney. I've I've represented you all in court. I, the, I'm really committed to this. I'm the one that made the gift. I need you to help me understand why my name's not on here. Right. And, and it, you know, and we just kind of default to to, well, that's, you know, the database um, and AI, God bless it. <laughs> will will you know override things um in the system for us you know in terms of efficiency but we know having been on the front lines and done the work we can't always rely on that and we need to build into the systems the ways in which and 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 make sure and ensure that our donors are being addressed and spoken to the the, the way they want to be addressed and spoken to and and so being able to just capture that information and know and feel confident that once that information is captured, it will be shared, you know, appropriately. So, and it's, and it takes all of us. So one of the things that I find frustrating, which I think is also, it's evolving. So I'm hopeful. Oftentimes organizations will silo women's philanthropy. They'll be innovative and maybe create a women's giving circle, which is important because women like to give collectively and the research shows that. Um, so it's a really wonderful, accessible point to bring women in. But then the rest of the team says, oh, that's Sally's work. Sally, you know, works with um, the task corps and Sally works with the Women's Guild. And, and the evolution that's happening, um, and I'm really grateful for this, is that the now um, fundraising teams are really realizing that it can't be siloed, that everybody on the team needs to understand uh, kind of the, this this data that is coming out and the research that that says that gender matters in philanthropy and everyone on the team needs to understand um, the power and potential of women as donors and need to have women um, in their portfolios and and so it's no longer um, just Sally's work and no longer just Sally's responsibility uh, to tend to the women um, in the organization and and I'll share with you I for the last 
many years back when I was an, back when I was an executive director, I primarily worked with LGBTQ and ASO organizations. But before that, I was in more mainstream organizations as a fundraiser. And I hear you. I cannot tell you how many times people would be like, "Well, Dolph's the gay member on staff, so he's going to tell us everything we didn't know, and he's going to do all the outreach and fundraising to you know our LGBTQ donors." And I'm always like, "Whoa, that's that's a little bit more than I asked for." You know, I I'm not prepared to represent all LGBTQ people everywhere. And that's the point, right? That that fundraising it's not a one size fits all. It's very much a relationship business. But the metrics that we use and that we champion really don't um, um, recognize relationships um, and, and haven't created, I haven't found yet, um, a system that really acknowledges the importance of building relationships um, in order to, 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 to get to the ultimate gift, right? Right. So share with me for a development shop, and you know, a lot of our listeners are at small and medium-sized nonprofits, so their development shops, if it's not just the executive director, it might be one or two other development staff members. So for a smaller development shop, how do they start to make that journey to really doing the outreach and really working to include women as donors and as philanthropists? I mean, it really starts with kind of your own audit. So really looking at the marketing materials that you use, um, looking at your database to see, um, and your donor list. It starts with your donor list. You know, looking at to see who is, you know, who are the women that are on there? What are their giving patterns, right? So do you have, do you have, uh, so women like to give to lots of organizations. So they may be giving $100 to your organization, and that wouldn't necessarily, on all of our different tricks and tools of the trade, um, elevate her in your mind to becoming maybe a $1,000 donor or maybe a $5,000 society donor. But you don't know that she gives $100 a year, like clockwork, to 100 other organizations in the same year, which means she has ability. Um, and so really, so what you want to look for there is, who is that $100 donor? Why has she been giving for five years in a row? Making that call, doing a little research to see, oh, you know, talking to other board members and other people on your development committee to say, does anybody know Jane Smith? She happens to be giving to us, you know, for the last five years. I'm, I'm planning on calling her, but does anybody happen to know she gives to other organizations in, in town? And so they're, they're just these hidden, because, because women give differently, um, they... They they don't necessarily meet all of these kind of efficiency uh, quotients that we use to try and elevate donors in other ways. So I would begin that way for for smaller um, and medium sized nonprofits to go through that donor list, see who's been giving consecutively, um, even if it's at a lower level. And women um, really, I always like to say this. First of all, the research shows that they appreciate and understand an expanded and broader definition of philanthropy. So they bring all of their resources when they think about their generosity. So before you can get to a woman's tr ultimate treasure, that transformational gift, you will have needed to engage her both in, in all the teeth. So time, talent, testimony. She's an advocate for your organization. 
and ties? Is she willing to use her social capital um, to, to advance your mission? And so if you find that, and that may not, in the beginning, all those four things may not translate to this a, a significant enough dollar level gift that you would think she is, you know, would be a major donor. But if those, any of those other things are present, have the conversation. Back to my, 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 my singular point. Talk to her, ask her, engage her. That is how to get to, um, to giving in a very impactful way for, one, for women and makes the experience of giving for women um, so much more enjoyable um, and inspiring for her. So I've got to unpack something real quick. Really, I'd like to unpack a few things that you just said, but you just said something that blew my mind. And I've been in or around fundraising for almost 30 years now. And again and again and again, and it could just be this, the fundraising school, and I don't mean university, I mean, you know, just the fundraising philosophy that I came up through and the mentors that I had. But again and again, I would hear time, talent, treasure, time, talent, treasure. You just blew my mind because I think I got five there. I think I heard you say time, talent, testimony, ties, and then treasure. That's right. Every, yeah, that, that is, that. That is the full spectrum of how women see generosity. Um, and I'll add a sixth T that is so important, um, and that is trust. So women, actually, generally donors together, it's so important uh, to be able to, to have trust in the organization and trust in your mission. And um, and something that, coming, that has really just blossomed and accelerated uh, during this pandemic is this idea of trust-based philanthropy that's happening um, for, for donors and for organizations and for foundations where they're giving more unrestricted gifts to especially frontline organizations, which is so important because that's saying, I know that you know what you need to get, to get this important work done and so I'm going to, I'm going to support you financially, and then I'm going to step at, I'm going to get out of your way. And um, so, not to not to mess up the, your five, but I'll add a, I'll add one more, and I'll say trust. <laughs> and I'll share one of the things I love about that because whether we're talking about board members or donors, you know, we're talking about people giving of. And yeah, when when you're you give trust to someone, like that, you know, yeah, people earn it, but ultimately it's given to you. That I love that. So I love the sixth. Thank you. That that's really awesome. Now let me ask you, as we're starting to think about moving our organizations in this direction, and we're starting to look at our at currently who's in our donor base and who are we serving, and you know who who is giving and where else are they giving to? If you're if you're advising that fundraiser who's making the initial call to maybe five women who are donors who the fundraiser has done some research on and thinks they may have the capacity to do a little bit more. What does that initial call feel like? So I think as you all, as, as most of your listeners probably already do, it starts with thinking, right? It starts with, um, and, and whether it's because they are a volunteer or if they made an initial gift. So it starts with stewardship. 
And then it starts with wanting to genuinely and authentically get to know them better. So asking the question, why? You know, what about, what about um, my organization or this organization, you know, prompted you to make this gift? Um, and, and motivations matter because women, um, the research shows that women, for them, giving is based on empathy for others. Whereas men, giving is often more about self-interest. And it's not that one is better than the other. And it's, it's, not, it's not that men aren't empathetic. That's not what we're saying. They just happen to, um, it's, a, it's a matter of degree and priority. Um, so back to this systems level, um, unconscious bias thing, right? So men generally will give to a man or somebody in the um, office or um, because they asked, but they have no connection to the mission organization. So, so for a fundraiser to find out from the get-go, what, what is it? What resonates about our work and our mission that, that prompted you to, to make a gift? Um, and then you go from there because women often will give, um, um, their giving is, is, is directly tied to their philosophical or political beliefs. And they'll talk to you about that. They're willing to share that. And then, and then they're willing to ask that other question um, about what, what other ways, you know, do you support this work? What, what else are you, are you kind of doing in this space? And just getting to know not only why they give to your organization, but starting to get a sense of what does their philanthropy look like in a much broader, broader sense. Hmm. That's awesome. I want to switch gears real quick. We're not going to go to the off the map question just yet, but I do want to switch gears because when we were doing the research, trying to find the person in the country who we should be talking to about this. And by the way, I think we did a great job because you're amazing. So when we were doing the research at your website, we came across some incredible reports. And when I say incredible reports, they're data-driven, they're well-researched, but they're also very accessible for those of us that are not academicians and are not researchers and often presented in infographic formats. So I kind of want to just talk about a couple of your reports, if you've got a couple of minutes for us to talk about those. Fantastic. And, I, and thank you for um, um, amplifying our work in that way. Our work is open source and free and available. Um, so, and so if you are a philanthropy nerd like me and you want to read that whole report that includes methodology, <laughs> statistics, that's there. But if you just want the executive summary or the infographics and the five key findings and takeaways, along with which I love um, when I was uh, managing um, a team of fundraisers, discussion guides and questions that kind of help bring the research to life all on the website. Go find it, use it. We want it used. We want it out there. I love that you brought up the discussion guides too, because you're right. That is such a great team tool just to help everyone explore it together and make sure everyone's on the same page. So can we talk for just a minute about one of your most recent reports, Women Give 2021? And, and I think there's a subtitle, and I think that subtitle is How Households Make Giving Decisions. Yes. So we're very excited about this particular report because it's um, uh, the last time that this question was asked of the general population was in 2005. And as you can imagine, we are a different <laughs> world than we were um, in 2005. And so one of the most interesting findings is that 
Um, while six out of 10 couples make giving decisions jointly, um, when, when um, if it's a separately deciding household, um, more often than not, women um, are making those decisions. Now, I'll say that six out of 10 says, it sounds like, okay, that's a lot. That kind of makes sense intuitively. That's kind of been my experience. This is a drop in 2005. So what's happening is that more households are making giving decisions separately. And so what does that mean to your narrative and, your, and the conversations that you're having um, with individuals and exploring how are households making, making their giving decisions? Um, the other interesting piece of this report that, uh, that your listeners might find intriguing is that it's the first time that we've looked at other ways, other giving, de other decisions, household decisions that are being made can, to try and kind of compare it to, to what does that look like against giving. So what we found is that giving decisions um, is closest to how households make decisions about short-term financial decisions, which gives us a sense that maybe for these particular households, giving is more transactional. So as an implication for fundraisers, how do you move out of that and move, move your gift conversations forward if the majority of households see giving as transactional? Um, and so are you, what kind of questions are you asking? Are you, are you really um, engaging in conversations about values? And I'll, I'll say one, one other finding is that in general, three out of four couples um, are, are satisfied with their giving. And so we always like to say that robust conversations about philanthropy result in robust philanthropy. And, and I'm sorry, real quick. Did you say three out of four couples are satisfied or are not satisfied? Are. 75% are satisfied. So if you think about your own, you know, your own relationships and how you encourage each other. So even if a household is now, if households are, 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 are growing in terms of um, separately deciding, by encouraging conversations about their individual giving, it's just going to grow their individual giving because they're going, they're going to encourage each other. So one of the resources um, that we included with this particular report was a couple's giving plan. And so it has just a series of questions that, that, that you and your partner um, can go through together. Um, it's really great uh, to do, we found um, kind of over the Thanksgiving you know, and holiday season, anytime kind of closer to the end of the year. Um, but it really challenges you to think about, are your values matching up with where you give? And is your giving, are you thinking about your giving holistically? So not just about the checks that you write, but the time um, that you volunteer, the talent that you lend to the kinds of boards that you want to serve on, and even back to um, advocacy. You know, so often now we are using our social media platforms to advocate for the causes and values that we include that. That is part of your philanthropy. And, and, and what's nice about that is that some, some years, you know, maybe you can write bigger checks and some years like the pandemic that we've just gotten, gone through, maybe your household wasn't able to, but how can you shift that? How can you stay 
committed to the giving plan that you outlined, outlined for yourself um, by using all of the other resources um, um, to help an organization or help a cause. I'll share with you, I loved the household giving worksheet and we're actually gonna end up using it in my house. And I'll also share with you, this is where I feel like I'm a really lucky person because I like things like that. And I like things that that like are experiential at, but help us come together as a couple. And my husband, he's not so into that, so he's tolerant of it. But 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 I am the person who's like, okay, we need to do this. And I'll be like, hmm. And then, you know, eventually I'll pin down a date and we'll do it. But I do. I, I think it's so valuable. And, and it's interesting that you say that a lot of couples now give independently. And one of my questions is, and, and I'm about to relate this, you know, because obviously we often think of things through our own lens, how it kind of works in our, in our right. my own household. Of course, right. But are they coordinating or is it just truly like you give to who you want and I'll give to who I want and there's no coordination at all? Well, we didn't do a qualitative um, assessment of this, but what I'm hearing from stories, you know, from the field and on the front lines is that um, if they are engaging in conversation, sometimes they'll they'll help elevate each other's giving, if that makes sense. If your partner becomes very engaged with a potential project that they want to fund, you can, as a fundraiser, you can help perhaps elevate or get them to that impact gift that they want to make by bringing in their partner. And, and then now a household that was giving, you know, separately supportive of each other. Now somebody's helping, helping that one, that one, you know, their partner do, make a gift that they want to make. Um, and, you know, we always talk about that, right? It's not about the dollar amount. It's not what is the impact that you want to make? And then we can, we can, we can figure out how to get there, but let's start with the impact first. So I've got to share with you the rule in our household is either of us can make a gift up to a thousand dollars without consulting. So a thousand bucks, not a problem. Right. A and that one, seems to be the threshold. Yep, yeah. exactly. A thousand and one dollars. We need it. We need to talk about it. And so we we give separately, and we did not used to coordinate. We do now coordinate. And the reason is one of the roles in in my family is is I compile because we we uh, in terms of our taxes. We do married filing jointly. So I compile all of our tax documents and I get them all over to the accountant and then I work with the accountant. So one year, three, four years ago, I was compiling all of our tax documents. And, you know, th- th- this is before um, before the individual and, and married deduction went up so high. So you still mm-hmm. really tracked every last gift you made. Mm-hmm. And so so I, I'm putting everything together and I was like, oh, oh, Frank gave $500 to this organization. Oh, Oh, I gave $750 to our organization. Wait a minute. This is above our threshold. We were supposed to talk about this. It's true. And, and, and in our household, um, you know, my husband doesn't know what we gave to until tax time when I <laughs> compile all the letters and then I hand it to him. But one of our, one of our research findings is, is this threshold. So men, it's a, there, there's the difference there. Men have a larger threshold in terms of a dollar amount that they're willing to give without consulting their partner than women. And, um, and, and so, um, <laughs> and, and I find that to be true in my own household. So I find it very interesting, the dollar level that Greg is willing to go into um, right away 
um, versus 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 me because I'll, I'll I'm comfortable at that thousand dollar space um, is a little bit higher and so it, so it's confusing right for fundraisers because if if men are willing to give you know a larger amount out out of the gate um, then why shouldn't we you know continue to focus them again out of efficiencies but the truth of the matter is you're miss so you're missing the point in terms of again, this household decision-making. So if six out of 10 couples um, make giving decisions jointly, that means a, a woman is part of that decision-making. If another, you know, 12% in separately deciding households is women. So now we're close to now, close to 90% of giving decisions made in a household involve a woman in some way. So what are you leaving on the table if you just go, for the larger dollar threshold man deciding household, which is only at around 11% to really focusing on a couple uh, married, you know, a couple or, or, or the woman don't, don't leave them out. Don't leave them out. Don't, don't chase the money. And, and I also just have to say, even if you are chasing the money and you think about it for, for straight couples, most of the women outlive the men and it's the survivor who makes decisions about where the money is going to be left. Right, right. And we did include LGBTQ plus couples in this in this report, this household giving decision report, but it makes things a little bit more complicated because we don't know who is the sole, you know, single decider in those in those in those. But but the data is going to start to get better because the surveys are going to start to get better. And we're going to hope we're going to be able to include more of those nuances with regards to um, um, the um, what a household really looks like. moving forward. And that's, that's something we're excited about. That, that's incredible. Jeannie, I do not want to leave you short and not have time to ask you the off the map question. And I think I've got a good one for you. So I understand that you minored in Australian studies, but I don't hear an Australian accent at all. So I am sure, I am positive there's a very good story about this. So I, my um, bachelor's degree is actually in international relations, um, but I am terrible at acquiring foreign language. Um, so when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I knew that I wanted to study abroad. Um, and my terrible um, um, ability to, to learn a second language really left me to, to English speaking countries. <laughs> as possibilities. And so um, the college that I went to had an amazing program um, with the University of Sydney in Australia. And so I was able to spend a semester there um, and lived with an Australian family, um, but acquired enough credits um, that I just a couple, one shy, one (laughs) from a minor in Australian studies. But I, it was this very immersive program where um, we learned about the flora and fauna of Australia. We learned um, kind of um, the the literature and and iconic um, nature of, of, of the Australian story and myth and Learned about Aborigines um, um, and that hist- history and origin. So um, I love. It's one of my favorite favorite countries. Uh, Sydney, in particular, is is my favorite city um, in the world, and I still have close friends there. So, so wh- even though I don't have a minor, I still have great ties there. And 
once this pandemic is over, hoping to bring those, the women's philanthropy work over, over there. That's awesome. And what a great experience to have as a young adult. What a really great experience. Yeah, it was wonderful. Very, very life, life, life transfer, transformational. I believe in um, study abroad. You know, I, I did not end up doing one, but I've been fortunate to be able to have traveled a lot abroad in the last 10 or 15 years. And I don't have a lot of regrets. You know, people always say I regret what I didn't do. And one of the things that I regret is not, and I, and I, like, it would have been difficult for me to figure it out, but to not have tried to figure out how to spend a semester abroad. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeannie. I am so grateful that you came. And listeners, I need to make sure that you know how to get a hold of Jeannie and how you can find out more about the Women's Philanthropy Institute at Indiana University. Now, their URL is pretty long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to post that in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And I know that's a little bit of a heavier left for you to for you to get that URL, listeners. But let me tell you, it is so worth your time. As you heard, there are some incredible reports there. There are worksheets. There are like discussion questions, things that you will use professionally. If you're mentoring others or working with others, you will use them with colleagues. And honestly, it's stuff you're probably going to use in your own life as well. I know, as I already mentioned, I know that I'm going to be using some of that in my own personal life. So make sure that you go and you check it out. There's a few things I want to make sure that you're thinking about when you go there. The first is download their Women Give 2021 report. It's an incredible report. Also, make sure that you are downloading their Women's and Girls Index 2020, which measures giving to women's and girls' causes. I think it's going to be a really good document for you to take a look at. And then the last piece that I want to make sure you know about is at their website, you can access a digital hub around Women Give 2020. And so that looks at the intersection of technology, gender, and giving. Once again, well worth a few minutes of your time to check it out. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dolph. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, listeners, if you found this conversation with Jeannie Sager useful, there are two other episodes I think you should check out. The first is episode 185, Six Ways Your Nonprofit Can Be More Trans-Inclusive with Andy Mara. Because a lot of what we're talking about today is how your organization can be more inclusive because when we include others in our journey, whether that's donors or board members or staff members or clients or community members, our organizations are stronger. And along those same lines, you might want to check out episode 167, DEI Leading by Example with Jermaine Guillaume. Once again, that was such a great episode on how you can be a more inclusive organization or this new term which I recently learned and love, how you can be more of a Jedi organization, an organization committed to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Not my term. I did not make it up, but I have to tell you it's what I'm using from now on. Lastly, listeners, this is episode 200 and something of the podcast, and this is how you will know it's a miracle I actually was able to pull off a podcast. Because only recently it was like, oh, we should use hashtags. 
So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If there's something that you really want to post about us or about this episode, please make sure you use the hashtag successful nonprofits. And you can do that at any of the social media that you use. That, listeners, is our episode for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, I don't love having to close the show with this, but the lawyers make me do it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. This is not a surprise. You can look at my LinkedIn page and see I'm not that. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Again, this should not be a surprise. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, accounting advice. And here is my final big thought for the episode. If you or your organization are in need of that type of professional consultation, please find a credentialed, competent, licensed professional in your area and have the conversation with them. And if you do find yourself in need of legal, accounting, or tax advice, and you don't know who to reach out to, you can always reach out to me. And if I know someone in your area, I am happy to make the connection. 